You're just following me around? Do you think I'm gonna... Think I have more food for you? Eric and I are talking to you from the home of a friend of ours named Kim. While she is out of the country, we're looking after her house, giving giant bear hugs to her two very large, goofy, and relentlessly lovey-dovey dogs. And we're feeding the plants and animals that inhabit her yard, including two vegetable gardens, an Eden's worth of trees and bushes and wild herbs, and a few squirrels. And a whole mess of birds. Sparrows, cardinals, blue jays, and shadow crow. Shadow, by the way, has been known to kill baby birds if Kim doesn't deliver his daily tithes of cackleberries and peanuts. You hear that, Shadow? I've given you your daily offerings. Please don't murder. And finally, we're also taking care of her small flock of chickens. It's a little bit of a cliche to talk about how calming it is to be out in nature, to tend a garden, but there's a lot of truth to it. Most of the time, if I go outside, my headphones drown out the noise of cars and trucks, street performers, construction, like the construction you're hearing right now as they're building a house across the street. But for the past week, I've welcomed the bird songs, the sound of wind in the trees, and these ladies as they follow me around waiting for lettuce and mealworms and peanuts. We've needed it too. If you listened to the credits in our last episode, you'll know that we're moving out of Virginia, back to our home state of Pennsylvania. That move is coming as soon as we're done house-sitting for Kim. It's been an exhausting month. Along with this move, we're both looking for career changes. For most of our adult lives, Eric and I have been students or teachers. We've been ready to move on for a while now, but we've been avoiding it because, well, change is scary. But recently, we decided it was time. So we're here tending plants and animals so we think and try to work out the next phase of our lives. We've been wrapped up in the soul-sucking endeavors of hunting for jobs, paying our bills, and until recently, for me at least, tending a constant barrage of student emails. I'm trying to describe a kind of feeling here, something that the French philosopher Albert Camus referred to as the absurd. He meant those parts of human civilization that deprive us of natural life, of our animalness that immediately thrust us into either the past or the future, force us to perform social niceties that feel pointless and false, that subject us to the daily agitations of waiting in lines and dealing with Verizon's automated voice message system. Would you like to discuss the account associated with phone number? Sorry. In order to get you to the right place, if you'd like to discuss the account associated with phone number, say yes or press one now. One moment, please. 
When he talks about the absurd, what Camus means is what he called the ridiculous character of our human habit. Quote, the absence of any profound reason for living, the insane character of that daily agitation, and the uselessness of suffering. You can't escape human absurdity. It's part of our nature because we're driven to set ourselves apart from other animals, to deny our own animalness. But for Eric and me at least, there's comfort in being here, living this life in which Kim has invited nature to take part in her own domestication. Chickens flock to us for dried mealworms. These two massive dogs smother us in fur and shove their heads between our legs. A crow lands each afternoon on the windowsill and taps the glass until we give him his treats. And uh, if we don't get up within about 30 seconds, he starts tapping again and... Shadow, how you doing? When I come out here to feed him, he flies away from the windowsill and... Well, Kim has this wooden picnic table that Shadow hops up onto while I walk over and then as soon as I get there, he flies up on the back of a chair and watches while I spread out peanuts and cackleberries for him. Cackleberries are Shadow's tithes, so he doesn't murder baby birds. All this adds up to a reprieve from ridiculous human habit and implies a more, quote, profound reason for living. Those are Camus' words, but we want to get away from the abstract in this episode. Welcome to Bestiary. Today on the show, a man and his wife leave the absurdity of the city to live more natural lives as chicken ranchers, only to find that they've brought the absurd right along with them, imposing the ridiculous laws of human habit on the natural world of predator and prey. Here's Scott Larson with Interfector's Folly. find my actions deplorable. Others have said what I did was trivial and, given the circumstances, entirely appropriate. My own feelings shift between contempt and the pointed guilt of a man who thought he had no choice. Mostly, I feel like a small, stupid mite clinging to the side of a giant rock as it rounds the sun for the billionth time. This is my account of the old theme, life and death crashing together and apart. It involves chickens. Scott and his wife, Steph, lived in a small apartment in Chicago's South Loop. They loved it, but eventually, the city started to wear them down. Threads of a different kind of life crept into conversation. Walking down Wabash at night, writes Scott, surrounded by skyscrapers, I might look up and say, I wish I could see the stars. Two years later, he found a job in central Illinois, two hours south of Chicago. They sold their city apartment for a life in the country. In the early days, their romanticism took the form, in Scott's words, of stupidly pointing at things in the yard. That tree is full of apples. It's an apple tree. Are those peaches? Look, a blue jay. A real goddamn blue jay. They had two boys and rescued a mixed-breed dog they named Lincoln. They conquered the land with gardens and birdhouses and flower beds and swing sets. 
But Scott, the once city slicker, still felt like an imposter, anxious to prove himself a true country boy. The local farm supply store that sold recently hatched baby chicks in the spring seemed like the perfect opportunity. And after some begging and crying from this absurd city slicker playing amateur chicken rancher, they finally agreed to sell him five. Three of them were Rhode Island Reds, fiery colored birds with shocks of white around their tails and necks. These they named Henrietta, Penelope, and Rebecca. The other two were barred rocks, whom they dubbed Meg and Peg, the first pair in a long line of chickens to come. These chickens, there's no way to tell them apart at all, as these barred rock chickens are, sometimes they call them Plymouth Rock. They're black and white speckled fat hens that there's no chance that they're going to look different. They all look identical. They are definitely clones, so... At first, they kept the birds in a small box, which they kept in the garage. They started off, you know, tiny. They were now about the size of, like, a large robin, maybe a little bit bigger. So I could... They could walk around. They had feathers, so it was time... They weren't fitting in the little box in the garage anymore, so I had the chicken coop ready. As part of the coop, Scott had built a run with a wooden frame and chicken wire. But I... I had no experience at all with where they should go at night in the chicken coop. I just locked them in and thought they'd be safe. They didn't know either that there was a roost inside where they could all sleep and be protected. Instead, they stayed outside in the run that was just basically chicken wire around some small pieces of wood. As the sun set, Scott writes, they stayed in the run, hunkered together in a pile, like they used to sleep in the box. And I went to bed thinking they were fine. The next morning I came out. As I'm walking back to to check on them. He found a pile of black and white feathers. He hurried toward the coop and immediately saw four of the chickens alive and seemingly well. So I wasn't too worried. Then when I, there's a clearly part of the chicken wire is pulled far away from the frame. It's bent to the point that the, the, some of the, the strands had ripped and there's more feathers all around it. And so it's clear something has happened. So I count them off and Peg is missing. She's completely gone. There's no sign of her except for just the scattering of feathers. Something had taken hold of her this robin-sized chicken, and pulled her through this three-inch hole. Scott took stock of the other birds, all of whom seemed unaware that anything had even happened. Except for the smallest one, the runt, Rebecca. Who was just standing there, motionless, until she tipped over, Scott writes, like a felled tree. He scooped her up to examine her. There was no sign of obvious injury. There's no blood or anything. But then finally I realized just from handling her that her wing was missing. The wing on the right side of her body was completely gone. There was just a tiny stub of a bone sticking out underneath the fuzz that normally would have been underneath her wing. Scott put her into hospice care, trying to make her comfortable until her death. He put her back inside the box that, until the previous night, she had known as home and set up a heat lamp to keep her warm. As he stared at this poor, maimed bird, a sense of guilt came over him. At the same time that this is all happening with these chickens, where uh, we were also starting our family. We had these two very young boys, 
so it's there's there's a lot of emotional overlap there because you're you've got these amazing uh you know kids that depend on you but there's also a constant anxiety and fear that you know these kids depend on me you know and am i doing enough for them am i you know am i is there something i'm not supposed to be doing so obviously once you have a kid it changes your life forever um and a lot of that was transferred to the chickens it's kind of a constant i don't know i would describe it as sort of like a nerve that goes from your your skull down your spine and it's just always tingling like the like the buzz from electric lights or something i don't know it's not like you are paralyzed by this fear but it's just always there so it's the same thing with the birds uh i'm just i always there's multiple times i've set up in bed in the middle of the night and thinking oh shit i left the wrong door open i put on my boots with my flashlight and i go check of course i close it but it's just that anxiety that these birds depend on me I'm the one that raised them. I'm the one that gave them this shelter and I let them down. I let them down. I let them down. He walked back out to the coop to assess the damage. And on the side, he found something that lit a fire inside him. There, perfectly preserved in dried mud, was a handprint. He found more around the coop and a trail of them leading into the woods all the way to the base of an elm tree where he found more piles of feathers. Peg he realized, had been ripped through this tiny hole in the chicken wire, carried off and eaten by a raccoon. As for Rebecca, she just kind of laid there all day. I assumed she was dead. But after a few days, she started standing around and eating and drinking, and eventually she was back to full health, only missing her wing. Scott and Steph decided that her miraculous recovery amounted to something of a rebirth. And this warranted a new name. Now that she only had a left wing and she was going to be a left winger for life, uh, we renamed her Hillary. So Hillary the chicken, once she was back to full health, uh, she went around the yard, but with her one wing, she couldn't, she didn't walk the same way as the other chickens. She kind of like bounced or, or waddled more. And the other chickens would fly up to the, the railings on the porch when we come out with the food and Hillary would have to bounce up the stairs. The night after the attack, after locking the chickens in the coop, Scott and his dog Lincoln waited until after dark to try to catch the animal that had attacked his birds. When Two Eyes threw back the beam from his flashlight as a pair of eerie green circles, the raccoon stood on its hind legs, let go of the wire it had been trying to break again and started backing away. Lincoln growled, and it bolted for the woods as Scott and his dog took off after it, all the way to the base of a fir tree, from the top of which those same green eyes gazed down. They repeated this over the next few nights, them chasing it off, and it coming back undeterred. As it turns out, chicken wire will hold chickens, but most predators can pretty easily break it or pull it apart. He rebuilt the run with hardware cloth and steel-gauged wire, 
and he started locking the birds inside early in the evening. And from there on out, things seemed good. During the day, Scott and Steph would sit outside with Lincoln and the boys, throwing breadcrumbs to their ladies. The hens would flock to them, with Hillary bouncing up the rear. This was the pastoral life they dreamed of. Predators weren't the only threats to Scott and Steph's flock. Most chicken ranchers will cover the bottom of their coops with shaved pine, which is a kind of soft bedding, which can absorb their excrement and hopefully keep it smelling kind of nice. At some point, though, in a bid to save some money, Scott decided to swap out the shaved pine and instead... I just used wood chips like you would use in your, in your landscaping. The problem with wood chips should be obvious if you've ever walked on them in your bare feet. They're hard, they're full of splinters, and they just hurt. It's not for animals, especially animals that have to, that have, have to walk, on the, walk on it every night. Especially for Hillary. Because while the other chickens could simply fly up to the roosts every night to sleep, she didn't have that luxury. She spent most nights in the wood-chipped nests. Soon, Scott writes, she took on a heavy limp, he picked her up to check for injuries. And so I noticed her feet that have cuts on them. And one of those cuts got infected and it grew into this large, I don't know, I would say marble-sized ball in the middle of her foot to where she couldn't put any weight on it at all. Hillary had developed a kind of staph infection known to chicken ranchers as bumblefoot. He had already gotten this bird maimed her first night in the coop. And now he might have to kill her the universally prescribed remedy to prevent the infection from spreading throughout the flock. How exactly was he supposed to do this? With an axe? A blade? The whole concept was horrifying. The birds were family. He scoured internet message boards full of chicken ranchers who happened, like him, to have bleeding hearts. One post suggested home surgery. He probably could have taken her to the vet, but in the end, he writes, what's crazier, taking a $2 chicken to a $100 vet appointment or setting up an operating room in your garage? So he bought a scalpel, a bottle of iodine, and gauze bandages, and he went to work. Having wrapped Hillary in a towel, he cut around the infection. She shook a lot, but didn't struggle or protest the operation at all. Inside her foot, he found this jagged ball of hardened pus. I pulled it out with a tweezer and I pulled out this ball and then filled it with neosporin and, and glued it together, wrapped her up in some bandages. And it, it, I was shocked how quickly she got back on her feet and was fine. After the surgery, Hillary and the rest of the flock thrived. but the magic wouldn't last. Scott had had the same group of chickens for about three years. So I 
stupidly, I think, thought I was in the clear, that I knew everything there was ever to know about having chickens, and I would just have these birds forever. Uh, I went on a fishing trip with some friends. My wife called me as I was actually right about to cross the Canadian border, so my cell phone would no longer work. Uh, and she quickly told me, all the chickens are dead. All the chickens are dead. And then sent me a picture of one of them. I don't know if it was Hillary or not, but one of uh, just a pile of feathers, of orange and white feathers. Pile of orange and white feathers. Orange and white feathers. That image turned in his head throughout his trip. Pile of orange and white feathers. He wondered what could have killed his hens. All the chickens are dead. A hawk? An owl? A coyote? A fox? Orange and white feathers. Orange and white feathers. The eight-foot-high privacy fence surrounding the property had kept those predators out for years. It was unlikely that a coyote or fox or neighborhood dog had dug underneath. It had to be something that could climb or fly. And I really doubted a hawk or an owl would kill all my birds at the same time. So I suspected it was the old raccoons, especially since I would see their muddy handprints a lot all over the coop at night. The handprints and the night prowling had never bothered Scott before. But an attack during the day was different. I did get angry because I did feel like they had violated the rules. We had set up this system where I left them alone and they could come by at night and sniff around and I didn't care. But during the day, my birds could go around and have the yard. and. I felt almost like they had violated this agreement, obviously, that I only had in my head. But I felt like now I had lost something that was going to be really hard to get back because I'd had these birds for so long, and I felt like I let them down. I let them down. I let them down. When he got home the following week, he learned that, in fact, one chicken, Meg, had survived. And my wife, Steph, had left her completely locked up in the, in the coop so that she would stay alive. And Link and I set about going out every night trying to protect her. And the first night they went out, they found the culprit, a huge raccoon, far more brazen than the one they'd encountered three years ago. This one stood its ground as they approached, hissing and arching at Lincoln and Scott, who then realized he had gone out, as he writes, unarmed, wearing pajamas and slippers, and had just interrupted a murderous predator with a taste for blood. I think once that raccoon got a taste for the chickens and knew they were there, it was never going to stop. It was going to just keep coming back and back. And... They backed toward the house, where Scott suited up with boots and a shovel. But when they went back out, the raccoon was gone. It had given up after the encounter and left Meg alone until the next night. This time, Scott brought along a garden spade and set floodlights to illuminate the battlefield. This may have been the difference for the raccoon, because as soon as Scott and Lincoln came for it, it headed for the fence. They bolted after it. This was my coop, Scott writes, my house, my land, and I would decide who died on it. As a self-proclaimed apex predator, Scott lifted the spade, and just as he swung down, Lincoln lunged at the raccoon. Scott jerked his weapon back and let go of it, sending the blade right into the fence, just barely missing Lincoln's head. Having nearly killed his own dog, 
Scott decided enough was enough. In his own words, he was done being the apex predator. But then, the next morning, he found Meg, or the few feathers that the raccoon had left of her, along with his muddy prints outside the hole he dug under the coop. And after that, I had no chickens left. This raccoon, in Scott's mind, had declared war. I had to do something, I thought, and that was, you know, not a revenge, but... He was worried for his boys. He was worried for his dog. I felt like I had to protect my space, so I set about trapping him. He went to the farm supply store and bought the trap that was on sale two aisles down from the chicks. Armed with this trap, he thought about what he would do with the raccoon once caught. If he took it away and left it to go someplace else, it would just slaughter another farmer's chickens. And maybe that is what happened to him. Maybe some humane dickhead, that's Scott's words, had dropped it off in the woods right behind his house. Scott knew once he trapped the raccoon, he had to finish it off. But he didn't know how. He had young boys in the house, so he certainly didn't want a gun there. Drowning seemed repulsive, but it also seemed like it was his only viable option. So... We had a little toolbox, which was pretty big. It was designed to fit in the back of a pickup truck. More than covered the space of the trap, and it was watertight. So he filled it with water, and he set it. You've seen this kind of trap before. It's probably a, I don't know, three feet by one foot rectangle which is made out of pretty hard gauge steel. There's a foot panel that you lift up the back when it attaches kind of to the roof. As the animal walks in far enough, it steps on a panel which unhooks the back door, which then drops closed. And then the animal is completely stuck in this box. I thought anyway. This raccoon took the back panel, which had these these little half inch metal bindings on it and just pried him clean off and was able to escape. Apparently had no problem ripping its way out of it. So the next day, he set about fixing and reinforcing the trap. I took some some more metal wire from my garage. I I redid the, the door and the bindings. And then I put the trap against... A pair of rebar spikes he had hammered into the ground and then tied to the back door using the wire. So there's no way it could pull the the door away again. So tomorrow came and... The raccoon came during the daylight again. It approached the trap, which Scott had baited with a hot dog. And it just slowly went in, and I watched the door snap shut. And the raccoon... Didn't even care, it was just eating the hot dog until it saw me. And once it saw me stand walking towards it, uh, it started uh, kind of smashing it into both ends of the, the trap, trying to escape. And as I'm trying to hold it, I'm also thinking, like, what am I doing? And a big part of that thought was literal. It was about what he was physically doing, drowning this raccoon. I'm just some asshole trying to, you know, living out here. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not a pest control person. I don't don't even know if this is going to work. If I drop it in the bucket, it's probably going to jump out of me or something. I don't even know. But another... I think bigger part 
of that thought is what he wrote in the essay. At that moment, dropping the trap into the water was the last thing I wanted to do on planet Earth. It was an act the man who lived in Chicago would never have done. He would have paid someone to make the problem go away. So it wasn't the country or the chickens that finally broke me from urban life. It would be this moment. Smug city boy no longer. So, on the one hand, it's almost like he was thinking of this as a kind of turning point. A moment of growth where he was leaving behind this naive, bleeding heart city slicker who'd come out to the country and been, as he wrote, stupidly in awe of some very basic things. That tree is full of apples. It's an apple tree. Are those peaches? Look, a blue jay. A real goddamn blue jay. But on the other hand, in the essay at least, Scott comes across ashamed, riddled with guilt, not just over the chickens. It's like he'd given up his reverence for life. Even if it was an animal that was threatening his flock, the whole thing just made him sick. Uh, I threw it in the drowned the raccoon. As he carried the trap to the toll box, the raccoon just lost it. Scott almost lost his grip. It started just flying back and forth in there, and it was hard to hold it. When he finally reached the toll box, the edge of the trap caught on the corner and almost fell back on top of him. I took a step back, he writes, and kicked it free into the water. I closed the lid. When it was over, I tipped the toll box on its side. Once the water had drained, he opened the trap and dumped the raccoon onto the ground. The look he got of it then switched something in his brain. Smug city boy no longer. Indeed. There was no Disney version of that frozen snarl. No stuffed raccoon with a body and face that wild. He loaded it into a wheelbarrow and rolled it to the edge of the woods. And these woods, they're full of predators and animals. Apparently, when they first moved, he'd found some dead deer on the land. I, I didn't want to bury them. I didn't, want to, I didn't know what I'm supposed to do with them, but I, I'd take them to the back of, near the woods, and the next day they'd be completely gone. The scavengers would take everything, bones and all. So that's what he did with the raccoon. Dumped the body by the woods. The next day, there was no part of them left. They were just taken away. And it could have been other raccoons, could have been the coyotes, could have been... All sorts of things. As he reset the trap for the coming night, he told himself this really was a vermin problem. He was just doing his part. If I ever want to have chickens again, I need to get rid of these raccoons. I, I didn't really understand that there's no way to get rid of them. The woods go for miles, there's a river, they'll keep coming forever. I didn't understand that until I had gone through many more raccoons. He hadn't prepared the toolbox ahead of time. So when the trap he'd reset captured the second raccoon, he had to get the hose out and fill the toolbox while the trapped raccoon waited. This time, when he dropped the trap inside, he watched the raccoon slowly stop moving and float to the top of the cage. It was not a good feeling seeing this dead animal that I had just killed. And it was a horrible thing to watch happen, uh, uh, even for a predator that, you know, the most people would be considered vermin. 
In his essay, Scott writes that his bones felt heavy. The air and the sunlight and the slope of the earth all felt filtered and muted. I mean, there are, there are people that enjoy hunting or, you know, farmers, people, they call animals all the time and I'm sure it's no big deal. I'm, I was from the city. Uh, I'm not a hunter. I'm not a, uh, yeah, I, in no way did I ever see myself as someone who just nonchalantly kills predator animals in there. But mm-hmm. that's where I found myself and I felt like I had to do it. So he kept resetting the trap. He'd killed four before a female mother raccoon found her way into the cage and to her death. What a horrible discovery, he writes. It seemed to me that I had just wiped out this raccoon family that was probably just, you know, doing their thing like I was doing my thing in the woods with my family. You know, they're, they're not doing anything wrong. They're not violating a law. They're predators and they eat chickens and I gave them a bunch of chickens to eat. Still, he set the trap again. A few days later... I did catch one last raccoon. It was the smallest raccoon he'd ever seen. And it was clearly a, a baby raccoon. It was tiny. And, uh... It looked like one of his son's stuffed animals. He could have held it in the palm of his hand. That was tough. Man. I didn't know what to do. I stood over it, he writes, bewildered. What was this? Justice? Vengeance? Or just another chore? more yard work they needed to get done. If I let it go, you know, what happens to this raccoon? Uh, at that point, I still felt like it was my duty to finish the job, right? I'm supposed to be this, uh, these are vermin. That's what, that's what the whole point of the trap was. So I killed the last big raccoon. And then as I was taking this big raccoon out to the woods, that's right. I said, no more. I'm not doing, I'm not doing that again. There's got to be. I'm going to figure out a better way to do it. These raccoons are going to kill my chickens. That's how it works. That's how it's worked probably, you know, for thousands of years. Raising chickens also comes with having predators eat your chickens. It no longer felt like I had a duty to try to break that cycle. It more felt like I had a duty to respect the cycle of predators and prey and just incorporate that into my view of what raising chickens was all about. So Scott figured, yeah, there is a better way. I'm just going to make a better coop that will hopefully keep them out. And that way they can go around being raccoons and my chickens can go on being chickens and everybody can share the land and get by. As I've told you, lost, I lost many more birds, but You you start again, and I'm still raising chickens 10 years later. I'm still adding something to my life. My job is uh, I'm assistant state's attorney, so I prosecute felony crimes. So it's a heavy, depressing job a lot of the time. Two weeks ago, I had a trial, aggravated criminal sexual assault. Multiple counts where this guy held down this woman strangled her, raped her, then attempted to pimp her out to his friends. So it's gruesome. Thankfully, he's guilty all counts. He's going to hopefully go to prison for over 30 years. He won't ever hurt anybody again. That's my day. So then I get home. I have a place to go. I can go down and talk to the chickens and get my mind right again. It's not zen. I'm not going to get into that, but it's sort of like that. It's like a 
simple task and it's an enjoyable test and they all have their own personalities and you know, you know I love just sitting down there with them and talking to them it's, it's a way to uh, give me something to do other than deal with work or whatever other stresses are in my life at the time I get to enjoy it with my boys we just had we have a six week old girl now and it's crazy because we're I mean our, our, my boys are nine and seven and so that we we had kind of moved on from this baby stage and now we're starting all over again like uh it's, it was kind of the same way when i start over with the chickens you get to learn the new birds and it's just part of your life and that's why you keep living Stick around after the credits for more Chicken Talk. Beastier is produced by me, Meg Slapis, and him, Eric Botts. Thanks to Scott Larson for letting us reproduce that essay for the show. It originally appeared printed in the literary journal Phoebe, based out of George Mason University, in issue 44.1. You can order a copy of that issue online at phoebejournal.com, where you can also find a whole slew of excellent poetry, fiction, and nonfiction. Also, if you ever want to talk to Scott about chickens or being a city slicker in rural America... Uh, I'm not a big social media guy or anything, uh, but I do have Twitter if somebody wants to reach out to me. I mean, if somebody, if some other chicken rancher out there wanted to reach out, uh, Scott A. Lars, so S-C-O-T-T-A. L-A-R-S. Yeah, if they, they want to talk chicken, I'm available. But like I've said repeatedly, I still have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> and we especially want to thank Kim Stryker and Eric Astor for all their support. Thank you guys for letting us house sit and dog sit and chicken sit and garden sit for you. Life's been hard these past couple months, and you guys really helped keep us grounded. Not sure if you knew that, but you and your ridiculously large Snuffleupagus dogs did. Give Allie and a big bear hugs for us. You're one of our favorite parts of Virginia, and we're really going to miss you. You'll be the first that we call if we ever find ourselves in the state again. Poddington Bear created our ad music. Other music in this episode from Tequila Moonrise, Nocturnum, Mikel Pereira Jaquez, Kevin McLeod, Free Tim, Lloyd Rogers, Lee Rosavere, Kai Engel, and Chris Zabriskie. And the music playing right now is by Roberto Billy. Subscribe to Beastary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever app you use to tap into the podcast ether. You can poke us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BeastaryPod, and our website is BeastaryPod.org. While you're there, take a look at the artwork Eric makes for each episode. And if you think we're worth keeping around, maybe click on one of the links we have on the site for monthly donations. If you can't donate, you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or just share the show with someone who hasn't heard us. 
and we're always looking for new material. Send us your animal-related stories, or that time you were reminded of your own or other people's animalness. Or maybe something happened once, and you're not sure it has anything to do with animals, but it still feels somehow relevant to the show. Leave us a message at 571-446-0341, or record a voice memo on your phone and email it to eric at bestiarypod.org. But even if you don't end up doing any of that, as always, thanks for listening. Fresh water. Fresh water for the chickens. What do you say to the chickens when you talk to them? Ah, well, I always call them my ladies, uh, or I call them by name. Uh, we just—I just lost Wendy. We—I we, named part of this this new brood after Disney princesses, kind of in a way to kind of poke fun at my boys, but also because I knew we were having this girl. And I had Wendy, lady, and I had uh, Blue, and the—I had the three fairies from. Uh, Sleeping Beauty, but so I would talk to Wendy and I'd be like, "What's up, Wendy lady?" and kind of like not not tell her about my day or anything like that, but ask her about her day and, and see what's going on. Talk to her about her eggs, how many eggs she was laying, and stuff like that. And you know, just what's going in your mind, just talking out loud, shooting the shit with my with my ladies. I don't <laughs> I don't get too deep into any philosophical questions. <laughs> right, right. Um, the metaphysics of, of, you know, Kantian ethics or something. <laughs> I do have, I have a roost on the outside. I guess it's a roost. It's a, it's an old pole that was in the barn I found and I put it in the outside of the run and it's right about at shoulder level. And a couple of the birds when I'm out there, especially if I'm bringing them leftovers, which they love like old tortillas or bread or, they love corn on the cob, they love bananas. They'll eat anything, man. They'll eat whatever I can throw out there. But if I'm bringing them leftovers, they come out and a couple of them will hop up on this roost and they're looking at me right at eye level. <laughs> so they're like three inches away from their face to mine. And I and I can just sit there and talk to them, uh, you know, and feed them tortilla chips or whatever I got left, you know. <laughs> it's great. You should try it. <laughs>